This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of September 28th, 2020. And on Monday, we started out with the contestants, Eric Ais, a media researcher from North Hollywood, California, Paula Spence, an art director and designer for TV animation from Altadena, California, and Samir Gandhi, a writer from Pasadena, California, whose two-day cash winnings totaled $37,400. And we get the Jeopardy! round categories, Writers Anonymous, U.S. Geography, Colleges and Universities, docu-series, The Jeffersons, and moving on up with up in quotation marks. And we get right off to a topical start uh, with Writers Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) The anonymous author of the 2019 book, A Warning, is listed as a senior official in this administration. You could almost see them all thinking to themselves, is this too obvious? Um, Before Paula rang in and said, uh, what is the Trump administration? Which was correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. We had a had a reference to my another reference to my Edgar Allan Poe deep dive at the thousand mm-hmm. dollar level in that category. In eighteen twenty seven, this eighteen year old anonymously published Tamerlane and other poems, including Visit of the Dead. And that's E A P Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. For those of you who are who aren't not uh, yeah. cool like those of you who Kyle. aren't down, you know. Who aren't cool <laughs> uh, with him. I got it because of your deep dive. I wouldn't have gotten this one if I had not heard that. And uh, way back, I did an Anglo-Saxon poetry deep dive. Uh, We didn't get too much into Beowulf because I was trying to really shorten it for us. Um, (laughs) But Beowulf came up at the $400 level. Yeah. So that was was a good one for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, The U.S. geography category, we had a triple stumper at the first... (laughs) Or at the $200 level, the fittingly named Mount Sunflower shines as the highest point in this state. Um, and that's Kansas, which is the Sunflower State, uh, if you didn't. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that, then it's like Sunflower is the only pointer. Yeah. But Mount Sunflower is not really a mountain. It's just kind of like the top of a hill surrounded by mm-hmm. other hills. And it is okay. on the border with Colorado. So you could walk into Colorado and then find yourself on a higher hill. It's pretty funny. Hmm. It, it is not a not an impressive mountain. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. We get daily double number one in the colleges and universities category at the six hundred dollar level. Samir finds this one and wagers one thousand of his twelve hundred. Paul is at twenty two hundred at this point, and Eric has eight hundred. And Samir gets the clue: students on this school's campus may run into Ben Franklin relaxing on a bench reading a newspaper, which sounds really goofy on a podcast because you can't see the photo, which was of a sculpture of Ben Franklin on a bench. And uh, he correctly identifies that this is the University of Pennsylvania Yep. in Philadelphia. Yes. We had a reversal in the next clue down in that category. It wasn't the next choice, but uh, the clue was more than one third of the courses at the Fort Collins main campus of this state school are sustainab- sustainability related. Uh, Eric rang in and said, what is Colorado, which was accepted, but then a few clues later, it was reversed, because that is Colorado State University. Mm -hmm. Which, when he said Colorado and he got it, he was 
credited with the correct response. So I was like, huh, I wonder if it's because the clue says main campus of this state school. So if you just said Colorado, the implication there is like Colorado State School. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'd, Colorado State is really what you'd go for. CSU. Yeah. There. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Samir is in the lead with 5,400. Paula has 1,200 and Eric has 3,400. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. History, restaurant rhymes, elemental facts, Olympic sites, terms from Islam, and follow the bunny. And that, okay, that follow the bunny, that first clue there, the $400 clue. In 1959, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee presented the Oscar won by a short cartoon featuring this critter, and that's all, folks. I realize it's follow the bunny, so it's going to be Bugs Bunny. Obviously, Bugs Bunny was the one for the receiving the award. Like, there's no question about what the right answer is. But Porky Pig says right. that's all, folks. Yes. I don't know why that bothered me so much, but that really, I don't know, that rankled me. (laughs) Mm. And it's not important. doesn't matter. It just, that thing was like, I don't know. Yeah. 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 I get it. Also in that category, I somehow it had not registered that there are two rabbits in Alice Alice in Wonderland, Wonderland, which I don't want to accuse Lewis Carroll of bad writing, but I don't know. That's, I'm just surprised to realize there are two rabbits. I knew both of their names. I just had never thought about it. Uh, the clue was seated between Alice and the Mad Hatter at the Mad Tea Party. He happens to be mad too. And there was a picture and it was clearly a rabbit. And um, Samir rang in and said, who is the white rabbit? The white rabbit appears at the beginning. And is late. Of Alice in Wonderland and is late. Paula picked up the rebound and uh, correctly responded, who is the March Hare? Mm-hmm. For Matt as a Marsh Hare is also a turn of phrase, or was a turn of oh, phrase. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, you can criticize him, I guess, for, for bad writing all you want. I mean, who who's to say what sort of consistency or variety there should be in that weird fever dream? Yeah. Anyway, Daily Double number two shows up in the Olympics sites category at the $1,600 level. Samir finds this one as well. And he wagers two thousand. He's in uh, he's in second place at seventy four hundred. Paul is at forty four hundred, and Eric is at eleven thousand. And he gets the clue. Many countries joined the U.S. in boycotting the nineteen eighty Summer Olympics hosted by this city. And that was Moscow. He got it correct. Uh, I personally mm-hmm. thought that was a bit easy for a sixteen hundred dollar clue. Agreed. Um, but he got it. Yeah. The terms from Islam category. My wife watched this episode with me, which uh, hasn't happened in a while, because usually I watch a recording of it later on in the evening or another time in the day. And she commented that all of those clues in that category were really easy. Mm-hmm. Like, And I said, yes. Yeah, we, uh, we've talked about that on the podcast a lot, how non-Eurocentric trivia seems to be pretty rudimentary a lot of the time. Yeah, you're expected to have a much higher level knowledge of... Christianity, mm-hmm. maybe Judaism, than Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or, you know, God forbid, any of the other world religions. Yes. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, we find daily double number three in the terms from Islam category at the $800 level. Eric finds this one and wagers 3000 of his 15000 Samir's at 9000 at this point and Paul is at 8000 
Eric gets the clue. Psalm is the practice of doing this during Ramadan. And he correctly responds, what is fasting? You don't really need to know the name. You don't really need to know the term. You just need to know kind of what the major faith practice of Ramadan is, um, which is a a dawn to dusk fast. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round... Paul is in third place at 9,600, Samir is in second at 11,000, and Eric is in the lead at 19,200. They get the category on the old map, and the clue is on the UN website's map of the world in 1945, these two initials of a member state appeared 13 times on continental Africa. Paula wagered everything but $3 and wrote what is GB for Great Britain, which is close but not quite. Samir wagered eleven thousand, uh, mm. so he just he just went for it all. Um, he wrote, "What is CW for Commonwealth?" Again, close but not not correct. And then Eric wagered twenty eight hundred one, which is a cover bet, and he wrote, "What is NL for Netherlands?" But the correct response is UK mm-hmm. for United Kingdom, which is That's the right. actual name <laughs> of the country, <laughs> the mm-hmm. United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Yeah, in 1945, after the end of World War II, basically the only imperial power left was the United Kingdom, because all the other ones had been smashed by the previous wars. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess you could say the Soviet Union was also an imperial power, but that was a different sort of empire. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the UK is the only one that really makes sense in this context. Over on the Jeopardy fan, Andy points out that there seem to be actually 17 occurrences of UK, mm. uh, not 13. Uh, and he notes that, you know, since it, if that is if that is correct, then there's technically not a correct answer to this clue. And so Paula and Samir have kind of grounds to appeal, mm. which was an interesting note, I thought. But in any case, Eric is our champion going into Tuesday. So on Tuesday, September 29th, we have Mason Maggio, a songwriter from Los Angeles, California. Molly Lower, a high school history teacher from Pasadena, California. And Eric Aiz, a media researcher from North Hollywood, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $16,399. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Island Nations, Games, Anagrams, Hashtags, Election Oddities, and the Boss of Pop Culture, Boss in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Hashtags, in this case, was hash functioning just as a slang word for food? I, it must have been. Yeah, and then tags is like it was like the it was like where foods got their names yeah. uh, is what this category came down to. I assume you did pretty well. Uh, I did, yeah. Uh, let's see, did I miss any? I did not. I didn't miss any. Nice. Yeah, I got all of these. Cool. The contestants missed the one thousand dollar level, which was uh, this dessert, a crisp meringue topped with fruit and whipped cream, was named for a Russian ballerina. That is a pavlova. I don't really know much about the ballerina, but I know she has a dessert named after her. She must have been tasty. Mm. I think they were like a favorite of hers or something. Oh, that makes more sense. It's not like made from her. Yeah. That makes more sense. (laughs) I thought it was 
kind of funny that we had a boss category and then a boss tweed clue, which was not in the boss category. Right. Another one that I got because of your deep dives uh, at the $800 level of election oddities. In 19th century New York, the Dead Rabbits Gang used force to make people vote for candidates of this boss tweed political machine. Uh, the response there was, what is Tammany Hall? I did talk about that. We get the uh, first daily double as pick number 29. It ends up being the last pick of the game or of the round. It's in the game's category and it's at the $800 level. Eric finds this one and he bets it all. He's at $1,800, uh, which is pretty far behind Molly's 5,400 and Mason's 5,600. And he gets the clue in the game of hearts. This card is known as the Black Lady. Uh, and he gets it right with the Queen of Spades. He didn't seem sure, though. It was a good guess. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have, like, extensive knowledge of the game... Like, I've played some hearts. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't. I don't think I knew that moniker, but it, this seems like it's kind of a coin flip, right? It's... A, it's a, if, you're, if you're cursor... If you have cursory familiarity with what a deck of cards is like... Mm -hmm. And you're told that a card is known as the Black Lady. You know it's got to be the Queen, and it's either clubs or spades. But only one of those is worth points, and that is the Queen of Spades. Oh, it's worth okay. 13 points. Right. Oh, right. Yes. All right. Thank you. I forgot. I. It's been a while since I played hearts. I played a lot of hearts in college, but... Me too, because it is an time. easy game to spend a long time on. Yeah. <laughs> and cheap. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Eric has bumped himself up to 3,600, Molly's at 54, and Mason's at 5,600. And they get the double Jeopardy round categories. Side effects may vary. Four-syllable words, American names, uh, lifetime achievement Grammys, nonfiction, and you say it's your birthstone. And once again, I was reminded of why I love reading one of my daughter's baby books called Baby's First Eames in the American Names category at the $2,000 level. This artist who made mobiles went into the family business. His father and grandfather were both artists. That's Alexander Calder, whose name mm -hmm. I have heard a lot, but it never stuck in my mind until I read that book for my kids. It's a very good book. Lots of good artists, mid-century modern kind of stuff and other, other, other designs. Nice. Yeah. I memorized Calder's name in preparation for appearing on Jeopardy. And that's one of the things I still have. Just if you see mobile artist, you're Calder. Calder it is always Calder. Mm -hmm. Always. Alexander Calder. He's the one. We get daily double number two in the you say it's your birthstone category at the $1,600 level. It's the 14th pick. Molly finds it. Wagers 2,000 of her 11,400. Eric is at 4,000 at that point, and Mason is at 10,400. Molly gets the clue. June features this. Its surface luster is called Orient. And she takes her time with it and guesses what is opal, but the correct response there is pearl. Mm, yeah. I didn't know that. I knew that, and I don't remember how I knew that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I correctly guessed Pearl, but I didn't know that the surface luster was called Orient. Hmm. That, was, that was new to me. Yeah. Um, I do think I knew that June was the, the, the June's birthstone was, uh, was Pearl. Oh. Oh. That is something that should be easy to memorize, and I should do. 
Yeah. I remember most of them. Well, I don't remember most of them. I remember a few of them. <laughs> I know the ones that I have, like, somebody who cares about their birthstone. Right. Who has a birthday in that month, you know? Yeah. I know my children's birthstones. I know mine. My childhood best friend was really into her birthstone. Hmm. So I've got, I've got like, four of them covered. I should really memorize the others. Yeah, it's only 12 and it shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just never gave it time either. Yeah. We find the third Daily Double in the nonfiction category. Uh, it's pick number 27. It's at the $1,200 level. Mason finds this one. Uh, he is already in a good lead at 16000 over Eric's 8000 and Molly's 8200 And he wagers 4000 He gets the clue... Later, a major motion picture, it was Sebastian Younger's true story of men against the sea. And he gets it right with the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Which my gut reaction was to say the deadliest catch. And then I went, no, wait, <laughs> it's the perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, that would have been real embarrassing on national TV if I had just like, if that had been me and I just fired <laughs> off deadliest catch. <laughs> That's I'm glad it wasn't, though. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I would have gotten to the perfect storm in time. For some reason, I was thinking that it was some kind of like castaway kind of survivor-ish mm. um, story. I, I just sort of headed down the wrong, yeah, the wrong kind of narrative path. Right. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Mason has a lot game with twenty thousand. Molly is in second place with eighty six hundred. Eric has eighty four hundred. And we get the final Jeopardy category, the Great Lakes. And the clue, an 1855 poem gives us this Native American name for the one great lake not known to us today by a Native American word or a tribe's name. Nobody got this one right. Eric responded, what is Lake Superior? Uh, That is not what they were going for. He wagered 201, so he dropped to 8199. He was trying to get above Molly if she if he got it right and she wagered zero or missed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Molly responded, what is Michigan? Uh, that's not correct either. Um, she wagers 5,500, so she drops to 3,100. Mason wagered 1,000, so he um, he's not risking his lock game. He responds, what is Lake Hiawatha? What they were looking for here uh, was Gitchy Gumi, which I knew from the poem Hiawatha. And so Mason and Eric were both on the right track. Mason had figured out, I think, that there was a connection to Hiawatha. Mm -hmm. Eric had identified that they were asking for something about Lake Superior, um, the one Great Lake not known to us today by a Native American word or tribe's name, right? So the Great Lakes are um, Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, Ontario. And so he correctly identified that Superior was the one not known to us today by a Native American word, but he didn't make the jump to the Native American name for Lake Superior. This was a hard clue to parse. Yeah, it it, it used the, the term, like it used the phrase Native American more than once, and the, mm-hmm. the word name more than once. And yeah, 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 you're right. It was hard to parse. Yeah, it takes a minute to pick it apart. And I'm not crazy about writing where it seems like what 
may have happened is the contestants couldn't untangle this tortured syntax in time to figure out what it was asking for. Although I do see, you know, like it, it that is what it's asking for. The mm-hmm. grammar's there, you know, it's not a flawed clue factually. Right. But I sort of expect sparkling writing from Jeopardy, and I don't think we got it here. Right. I agree. So, uh, so Mason wins this one uh, with 19,000. That's right. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants, Kamal Mo, an attorney from Lakewood, California, Katrina Post, a client relationship manager from Santa Monica, California, and Mason Maggio, a songwriter from Los Angeles, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $19,000. And in the Jeopardy round, they get the categories British Government, Musical Styles, Household Names, Yesterday, All My Troubles, and Seemed So Far Away. I feel like Haile Selassie has come up a lot in Jeopardy recently. Mm, yeah. And I realize recently includes like the, the reruns from the summer. So really those could have come from any time in, you know, Jeopardy history. But I feel like I've been seeing Haile Selassie a lot. Uh, that was mm-hmm. in the $1,000 clue of yesterday. A famine was one factor that led the Ethiopian army to depose this emperor in 1974. That's Haile Selassie. Mm-hmm. Founder of Rastafarianism. The All My Troubles category was kind of a weird catch-all. Yeah. I mean, as much as any of these categories are like trivia, that category did not point you anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Every clue was phrased as like a complaint about something, but it was just it was just a complete grab bag Um, at the $200 level. I tried soft. I tried rigid gas permeable. My eyes still don't feel right with these. That was what what are contact lenses. Katrina got that one. And then at the $800 level, we've got I'm playing this Othello villain in an hour. I know Rodrigo helps him and he frames Cassio, but I don't know his lines. Uh, That is who is Iago. Right. Mm -hmm. So like. We're just all over the map on that one. Yeah, really. Uh, Daily Double number one comes up in the yesterday category at the $600 level. It's the 13th pick. Kamal finds it and wagers a thousand of his 1600. Mason has a thousand at that point and Katrina has 2400. And the clue is Gerald Ford tried to tackle a big 1970s economic problem with the WIN program or WIP this now. I think he missed that WIN was uh, like capitalized and in quotation marks and then WIP and now were in quotation marks. So you were supposed to be going for like an acronym yeah. here. He he guessed what is the vote? Uh, the correct response here is inflation. Yeah. All right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Mason is in a solid lead with 7,200. Katrina is in second place with half his score, 3,600. Kamal has 1,000. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, theater time, three vowels in a row, Americana, let's get medical, playing the part on TV, and flowers on the wall. Mm -hmm. We get the second daily double in the Americana category. It's pick number 10 in the round, and Kamal finds it. He wagers 1,000 of his 3,400. Mason is in a good lead at 10,400, and Katrina's at 5,200. And he gets the clue. 2020 marks the 75th anniversary of this iconic toy that sprung forth from mechanical engineer Richard James and his wife Betty. 
And Kamal gets it pretty much right away. That is the Slinky. Mm-hmm. I do have to say the writing of that clue makes it seem like they gave birth to it. <laughs> you're, you're you're not wrong. Although, like, also, it also evokes, like, like alien, right? Like, sprung yeah. forth yeah, doesn't really like, describe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not like, it's not like normal human labor um, yes I've, I've been yeah. present for a couple of those there was no springing yeah. yeah no um the medical categories always make me wonder if they are like hiding um like a like product placement like deal brands or whatever and hmm. this one i don't think so but there's the side effects one um a couple days ago or the day before this maybe yeah. um I thought had probably something where there was where there was some kind of deal there. That whole side of Jeopardy, I'm sure, is a thing, but it's opaque to me. Yeah. Um, I think they managed to do a pretty decent job of, like, obscuring that, except for the, the ones where they're, like, obvious, you know, Viking cruises. We'd like to thank Viking cruises for blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, the ones mm-hmm. where they're very overt about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. This particular one didn't have anything <laughs> that I would, that I associate with medications Jeopardy's target audience would be likely to take. We had LSD, something for gout. We had Ritalin, mm-hmm. um, uh, which can treat, they said, narcolepsy as well as ADHD. I did not know that. Um, but I don't think of Ritalin as, you know, sort of really popular in the, the, uh, in the retired set. Yeah. yeah. Um, something about amniocentesis and uh, something about... Um, Concussion. Concussion in football players. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Daily Double number three comes up in Flowers on the Wall at the $1,200 level. Mason finds this one and wagers 3000 of his $11,200. Uh, Katrina's at 6000 at this point and Kamal at 6800 And he gets the clue. This woman said, I'll paint what I see, what the flower is to me, but I'll paint it big. And he correctly responds, who is Georgia O'Keefe? Yep, Georgia O'Keefe. Did I talk about her? What did I talk about? I feel like I remember talking about something with she's, Georgia O'Keefe. She's come up at least briefly. Yeah. Maybe maybe in a quiz? Yeah. Was I talking about New Mexico? Somehow I talked about Taos, and I don't remember why. I don't either. Was that the Kit Carson one? I don't know. Oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah. I remember yeah. talking about Georgia O'Keefe, so like... Mm-hmm. Flowers, New Mexico, New York skylines. Mm-hmm. That's George O'Keefe. Yep. We also had a triple stumper where uh, none of, where n- nobody nobody knew that Mr. Sulu was George Takei. Which again, like oh you know my. what you know. We'll yeah. see this in tomorrow's episode. Uh, there was some there was some shade being thrown for contestants not knowing things. I'm not throwing shade. It's just it that one surprised me. I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's such an active internet personality now. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not like it's not like he faded away after that. After that was gone. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so we get to final Jeopardy. Mason is in the lead at twenty thousand six hundred. Katrina is in striking distance at eleven thousand six hundred, and Kamal's at six thousand. They get the category historic figures and the clue. In a nineteen twelve telegram to his wife, he said, "Quote." Am feeling fine. Have bullet in chest, but talked for an hour and a half after being shot. This is one of my favorite stories from American history. 
Kamal wagered everything but 100, uh, and he wrote who is Ernest Hemingway. Not not to be too like flippant about it, but um, Ernest Hemingway's experience with getting shot was a little more fatal. Uh, <laughs> be too flippant. All right. Um. I, 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 when Ernest Hemingway shot himself, he wouldn't have then been able to send a telegram. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Katrina wagered 4,000, and she guessed who is William McKinley, which is closer, but that's still incorrect. Uh, and Mason wagered 3,000. And he correctly identified who is Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. That was the uh, famous moment of uh, he's up on stage giving a speech. He gets shot in the chest. I believe he punched the guy who shot him. And then the guy was like taken away. Uh, and he continued to give his speech claiming that it takes more than a bullet to kill a bull moose. Mm-hmm. And thus the progressive party became the bull moose party. Yes. Uh, the bullet was slowed down by his uh, speech in his jacket pocket. Which, hearing that kind of thing is always so weird to me living in, like, now. Because the kind of bullets we have now would not care about something like paper. Yeah. But it's always interesting to me that, you know, historically things like that have been those kinds of stories. He had a 50-page speech in his jacket pocket, and I don't think I've ever owned an item of clothing that would fit 50 pages in any of its pockets ever. But, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I don't think that's history, though. I think that's um, the patriarchy. I want the good pockets. I was going to say women's clothing tends to be a bit more form-fitting and not not uh, mm-hmm. not spacious. Not have appropriate pockets, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a pet peeve. Oh, yeah. No, pockets are awesome. Yeah. So on Thursday, October 1st, we have the contestants Philip Howard, a naval officer from Santa Clarita, California. Preston Wilson, a sommelier originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Mason Maggio, a songwriter from Los Angeles, California, whose two-day cash winnings total 42,600. And I think we haven't said that said this yet. Um, normally Jeopardy insists that you identify yourself by wherever you presently live. They seem to be flexing that rule or changing it uh, now in large part because everyone is from Southern California. And so to kind of break up the monotony, it seems contestants are being given the option of identifying their city or town of origin rather than where they live in Southern California right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get the Jeopardy round categories. Every day's a holiday. Bestsellers. That's my jam. New to the OED. During his presidency. And Yankee Stadium. Yep. We had another uh, Salvador Dali question in, during his presidency. The thousand yeah, we sure clue. did. This artist's The Persistence of Memory and Earhart Flying Solo Across the Atlantic happened on Hoover's Watch. That is Salvador Dali. Mm-hmm. The That's My Jam category was my jam. That was a fun um, category. It was a fun category. We had um, at the $200 level, my personal fave, this type of grape jam bearing the name of a Massachusetts town that is Concord. Yeah, uh, con- he mispronounced it. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> if, you learn, if you learn things by reading them, then you might not know. That, yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm Massachusetts kidding. towns. I mean, if anybody needs help with pronouncing Massachusetts towns, let me know because you cannot figure it out by looking at how they're spelled. Yeah, it's almost um, like the letters don't matter. It yes. I'm looking at you, um, Worcester. Yep, that's my hometown, Worcester. Uh, we've got Leicester, we've got Lemonster. Uh, 
<laughs> Quincy, um, right? Yep, that's right. And uh, um, it's like you're trying to be French with all those ignored letters. It's it's different though. It's different. Like yeah, no. With Massachusetts, you just have to memorize how all the town names are pronounced because there's no logic to it. Yeah, you just have to know. I didn't know the. $600 level one, or I had a guess, but I wasn't sure. Uh, this, at the $600 level, Inna Jam makes a plenty spicy one from these peppers named for a place the Aztecs called Chalapan. And Philip got that one. It is jalapeno. I didn't put together until I was reading it back for the podcast that you could get it just from the name of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, Spelled pretty much I the guess, same. I guess that's the way. I don't have anything especially to say about Linzer Tort, except that I knew it, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And we finally uh, got Kumquat. I know you've, you've been wanting yes. Kumquat to be on <laughs> Jeopardy since you got the Quince question. Right, yes. Uh, which I rang in with the word Kumquat in my head. I think you were trying to get in, but we're going to say Kumquat if you got in. But it was actually Quince, and I, I figured it out in time. Yes. Um, but we did have a Kumquat question in the $1,000 level kumquat question. It's fun to say. Uh, yeah. The clue there was, my new fave is the jam from the Mewa type of this small fruit with a Q in the middle of its name. And they had a picture of a pile of kumquats. And Mason got that one. Good job, Mason. And then we, uh, we had the Yankee Stadium category, which was left for mostly last... $200 clue. The correct response was Babe Ruth. Mason got that. But the other ones, they did not ring in on and they were triple stumpers. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, as much as there is, you know, nonsense on on the Twitterverse about contestants not knowing something, saw a lot of this about you know, oh, not, not knowing sports, har, 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 har. If you're not a Yankees fan, a lot of these are not gettable. Like, mm-hmm. And if you're not a baseball fan at all, like you're not going to know who Aaron Judge is. You're right. not going to. You're probably not going to feel confident ringing in on uh, ringing in for Mickey Mantle at the eight hundred dollar level. Mm-hmm. And then we got the Daily Double as the last clue in that category at the thousand dollar level. Uh, Mason found it because he was the last one to give a correct response, and uh, he wagers one thousand. Clearly not feeling confident. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's at 5,800, Preston's at 2,200, and Phillips at 2,000. Uh, and he gets the clue. A museum at the stadium has statues of World Series hero Don Larson, and 60 feet 6 inches away, this great Yankee. And he doesn't know. He guesses Lou Gehrig. That's Yogi Berra. But in mm-hmm. order for you to know that, you had to know that Don Larson was a pitcher. <laughs> you also had to be able to understand that 60 feet 6 inches away is the distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate. Yeah. There's a lot of implicit knowledge you needed to have going into that. Yeah, I, I got the 60 feet, 6 inches part. Like, I, I figured that this was a pitcher and catcher pair, but, like, I don't know baseball at that level of detail. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Someday, maybe. I mean, you know what you know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I don't, I don't feel like that particular category was any more or less, like, egregious than anything else. Mm-hmm. Not three contestants together mess so yeah and when alex is like oh no the catcher you're like well alex uh that's clearly the issue yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> i <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway 
Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Mason has just lost 1,000. So he's at 4,800. Preston's still at 2,200. And uh, Phillips at 2,000. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, The Young and The Reckless, Inventors and Inventions, Movie Thrillers, Nat Geo, with G-N-A-T being the Nat, Historic Women, and E12345. So from top to bottom, they were probably instructed that they needed to go top to bottom on this category. Uh, E will be the first, then the second, then the third, fourth, fifth in each of those clues. Mm -hmm. In the... $800 $800 level of movie thrillers. Um, I thought this this connected to my green, ro- green room experience. Uh, the clue was this 2020 thriller based on an H.G. Wells novel had the title character as an abusive ex stalking Elizabeth Moss. Uh, that is The Invisible Man. Mason got that one. And he really leaned on the word the. The, yeah. the Invisible Man. Um, because in the green room, as they are running through the Jeopardy rules, they emphasize that initial articles are not required unless there are two separate works, one of which has a the or whatever the case may be. Um, And the example they always give is Invisible Man versus The Invisible Man. Um, Two very different books. Yes. So I thought that that was a fun moment for me. Much was made in some of my social media circles over the fact that all of the clues we didn't have time for were in the historic women category. Yeah. You know, everybody has to do their clue selection in the way that they think works best for them. But it was interesting to see them be like, should I answer questions about gnats <laughs> or, or women <laughs> um, they, they didn't know they were going to run out of time um, right. you know uh, you should assume you're going to get to all of them yeah but I would have liked to know what was under those other uh, unrevealed yeah. um, squares daily double number two comes up in the inventors and inventions category at the $1600 level Philip finds this one and wagers 3,000 of his 4,000. Uh, Mason's at 9,200 at this point, and Preston is at 5,800. So he's he's looking to make a, a move here. Um, this will take him up into a close, a much closer second place. The clue is Donald Hings created a portable two-way radio around 1940. Today it has this rhyming name, and he correctly responds, what is a walkie-talkie? And uh, the third Daily Double is the only revealed clue in the Historic Women category. So I guess we're lucky we got that one. It was pick number 26, so the last one in the round. Mason finds this one, and he wagered 3,000 of his 11,600. Preston was at 5,000, and Philip was at 13,000. So Philip had moved into the lead at this point. And he gets the clue. Her services refused due to prejudice. Jamaican-born Mary Seacole helped care for British soldiers on her own during this 1850s war. And he, I think, guesses what is the Crimean War. And that is correct. Obviously, Florence Nightingale was the more famous nurse mm-hmm. of the Crimean. But uh, now we know about Mary Seacole, if we didn't yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Uh, So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, um, Mason is in the lead with 14,600. Philip is in second place with 13,000, and Preston has 5,000. And we get the final Jeopardy category, Literary Terms. 
They get the clue. In medieval times, it was a long tale of a hero like Gisli or Njal. Today, it means any story of epic length. Preston has wagered everything but $7 and didn't come up with anything. He has what is an and then question mark. Philip has wagered 10000 and correctly responds, what is a saga? Mason wagered 12000 um, uh cover bet and a little bit, but responded, what is an opus? Hmm. Philip's wager here is probably larger than is strategically ideal, right? If you're expecting Mason to make a cover bet, yeah, you want to stay above Preston. But Philip got this one right, so it works out for him. Yeah. Uh, and he is our champion with 23,000. So on Friday, October 2nd, we have the contestants Jason Lyon, a litigation attorney from Pasadena, California, Bemby Ford, a writer originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Philip Howard, a naval officer from Santa Clarita, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $23,000. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, War American Style, Big Business News of the 2010s, The Sisters' Sisters, Clues from a 1965 Jeopardy home game, Beastly Reviews, and Aftermath. So each correct response will begin with M-A-T, but come after the word math in the dictionary. Mm -hmm. I liked that 1965 Jeopardy game. I did too. So Jeopardy home game, it, that I, I think that is to say, did, did Alex clarify this, that this was from like a, like a board game or, or card game or mm -hmm. like something you, like a product you could buy to play at home? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Like a board game with, uh, I don't know if we had the 1965 one, but we had an old one where it's like a box and you know those clickers that they give you at the, at like pet training classes yes. to train your dog? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those, those were the buzzers. Huh. For the people playing. And uh, yeah, just had like cards. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are uh, those are fun, if a bit uh, dated. Traditional bath and date night. <laughs> now the question is, for the same person? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, is, the, is this where we get the kind of old, like, get out of a date thing where you where you say, I can't, I have to wash my hair? Right? Like, have you heard I, that? I have heard that as a joke. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so we find the first Daily Double in the War American Style category at the $600 level as the sixth pick. Philip finds this one and wagers 1000 He only has 800 at that point. Uh, Thumby has 600 and Jason has 400 uh, he gets the clue by a vote of 19 to 13. The Senate passed the declaration of war for what would be called this, also known as Mr. Madison's War. And he correctly responds, what is the War of 1812? Mm -hmm. I don't actually know a whole lot about the War of 1812. I know it uh, existed. I mean, I could go into it, but <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. not the deep dive I will, this week. So. I will research it sometime. But yeah, good job on that one. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Philip is in the lead at 6,000, Jason has 5,000, Thumbi has 3,800, and we get the double Jeopardy categories. We'll give you some latitude, the actor who said it, Russian opera, self-help books, transportation, and last 
words. And that was a wordplay category where all the responses had something to do with finality. Mm -hmm. They were not interested in playing that Russian opera category. No, they were not. It remained uh, till the end. Mm -hmm. I don't blame them. Those were, I mean, the clues themselves were, you know, as Jeopardy clues go, were gettable based on the information in the clue rather than like your knowledge of the opera. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I thought those were decently high level, at least in terms of the operas they were referencing, because they're not your standard, you know, like repertoire. Yeah, agreed. Oh, uh, I thought the uh, the $1,600 level of the actor who said it came really easily to me, though. Um, the clue there was 2012. That's my secret cap. I'm always angry. Um, and uh, Mark Ruffalo says that in The Avengers as the Hulk. And that is one of my top five reaction gifs. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's... Yeah, I mean, that's one of my top five reactions to usually my students, yeah. but other people. Uh-huh. Usually when it's when a kid is acting a fool, they're like, Mister, how come you're not getting angry? Like, it's my secret. I'm always angry. Yeah. All right, so Daily Double number two shows up in the last words category. It's at the $2,000 level. Pick number 19, Thembi finds it, and she wagers 2500 of her 3,000, she is pretty far behind. Jason is at 6,600, and Philip is at 14,400. She gets the clue, this term for the end of the line was once a god celebrated at the end of the Roman year. She takes a long time, and she guesses what is terminus, which is correct. Yeah! And she's very, very happy about it. Mm-hmm. And Alex encourages her to enjoy the moment, yeah. and then select again. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> pretty immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciated her her victory dance there. That was mm-hmm. good. Daily Double number three is the very last pick of the round at the $1,600 level of Russian opera. Philip finds this one. Um, he wagered $1,000, which it turned out not to matter, um, but I thought that he kind of missed his opportunity. Yeah, here. 1601, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so, uh, he was at 17,200, uh, Jason was at 9,400, Thembi was at 6,700. If Philip had, um, made a wager of 1601 or more, he would have made it a lock game on the last clue of the game, um, which I certainly think is well worth the extra $601 of risk. Mm-hmm. He gets the clue. This iconic insect theme was written by Rimsky-Korsakov as an interlude for the opera The Tale of Tsar Sultan. And you could see him get it right away. And I thought I saw sort of a like the like the little bit of regret of should have wagered bigger. Yep. I mean, it's fair. It's fair to not make a huge wager here. This is they have avoided this category until the end. And the clues have not been easy. Um, But he knew this one was Flight of the Bumblebee. So that puts him up to 18,200 uh, over Jason's 9,400 and Thembi's 6,700. And they get the final Jeopardy category, Architecture. And the clue is, begun in the 1170s on former marshland, 
it has been called a perfect imperfection and a legendary mistake. And they all got it right. Uh, Thembi wagered 6,600 and wrote, What is the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Jason wagered 9399, also wrote What is the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and Philip wagered 1800, bringing him up to around 20,000 with the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So he will be coming back on Monday. That's right. That's the week, and we are once again at the point in the show where we implore you to get out of your house, whether that's virtually or in reality. Or just with your money and support mm-hmm. something important. It seems like every week we come back and there is more than a week's worth of events that have continued to be mm-hmm. relevant to this. Yep. You know you know what we've been saying, if you've been listening. And if you haven't, we encourage you to find a way to support social justice movements in your community and in the nation at large. Uh, we highlight communityjusticeexchange.org and Black Lives Matter. Dot com. Uh, they are, have plenty of resources and better explanations than we do as to what they do and how it matters. So uh, check them out. Yeah. And make sure you're registered to vote uh, if you are, in fact, eligible to vote in the United States. Um, some of those registration deadlines are coming up. Um, and then make sure you do vote. <laughs> that is also important. <laughs> It is just as important as being registered. Um, you have to actually vote. I know you're going to. And uh, I'll follow suit. I'll follow uh, suit on uh, the Jeopardy fan, um, which uh, their their website has been reminding us all that we need to wear our masks. It has to cover your nose. Also, that's really important. Um, and your mouth. And your mouth. Yes. Please. <laughs> yeah. Feeling like you need a mask is not the standard. Uh, the standard is that we wear a mask when we're around humans who don't live in our house. So find a mask that works for you. Wear it when you're around other people. And uh, yeah, let's let's just be decent humans for each other. Yes, indeed. All right. What are your deep dive guesses? All right. Uh, now that the scolding portion of the program is over. <laughs> um, uh, are we talking about... I, I thought there were a lot of... Um, uh, interesting women who were triple stumpers. So I themed my guesses around that. Um, are we talking about Maria Teresa? We are not talking about Empress Maria Teresa are... of Habsburgs, although it was a very strong consideration. All right. I got close. Are we talking about Lucretia Borgia? Of course we're talking about Lucrezia Borgia. Yes! I am amazing I knew... at this! <sighs> when you said, like... <laughs> interesting women i was like oh god damn it <laughs> i mean I, I i realize this is more on brand for me it's like renaissance european history mm-hmm. why well, don't mind if i do yeah um, well the other one who but, was on brand for you would have been anna pavlova um mm, that would have yes. been my third guess if my second guess hadn't been right um yay uh, all right man i should have talked about yogi berra <laughs> No, it's just I really, I find that, like, the Borgia are very interesting to me, and I know some stuff. I also know what I've seen in pop culture, which may or, like, which I don't know whether it's, you know, historical or not. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this would be a good opportunity uh, to talk about the Borgia. So I'm not yeah. just talking about Lucrezia, I'm also talking about um, the Borgia family. Great. This is a topic that I know is interesting, but I have not taken the time to really immerse myself, so I'm excited. 
Yeah. And so they're they're kind of interesting in particular, at least to me, because they're not a royal family. They're not... Their lineage is not necessarily marked by a number of rulers in any particular place. Although they do have, like... They do have lineages of, you know, certain, you know, ducal lines or, you know, mixing bloodlines into royal families. But it's not like it's the, you know, House of Bourbon or the Habsburgs or any of those other big notable family names. Uh, And so they, in a way, it's almost like they were a flash in the pan right around the year 1500. And yet they had such a really like profound effect and, and like lasting kind of influence. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. Now, of course, being a family, obviously, you can trace genealogy back forever and ever and ever to the beginning of humanity and such. I'm not going to do that. I'm really going to focus on like the the most historically like you know significant or most I guess intriguing uh, of them, and that's Rodrigo Borgia who was elected Pope Alexander VI, uh, and his children, uh, Giovanni, or Juan, I'm going to refer to him as Juan, because that's how I first, like, was introduced to, he's not a character, but, like, my first readings about Juan Borgia were as Juan Borgia, but he's also called Giovanni Borgia, Cesare Borgia, and Lucrezia Borgia. There were others, obviously, but they're kind of the, they're kind of where all the intrigue happens. So, the House of Borgia, it's named after the town of Borgia, which was in the Kingdom of Valencia, which is Spanish. Uh, so, they were a Spanish Aragonese noble family, and uh, they rose to prominence during the Renaissance. They were technically from Aragon, and they became especially prominent in ecclesiastical and political affairs during the 15th and 16th century. Now, uh, Rodrigo was not the first Borgia Pope. Actually, uh, his uncle, Alphonse de Borgia, was uh, elected Pope Calixtus III in 1455. Uh, and he was Pope for a whopping three years. Man, looking at some of the, the numbers on, on how long Popes lasted back then, I was just like, man. Mm-hmm. Oof, they turn over so fast. Yeah. Especially at the time and in the immediate history afterward, there was a uh, a very strong belief that the reign of Alexander VI was uh, characterized by basically just a whole bunch of nepotism and sinful behavior, just bad things. But um, more modern scholarship has sort of softened on Alexander VI and... Um, it, it seems that a good amount of that reputation came from jealous rivals uh, or, you know, other other vested interests of people at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, certainly he was, you know, political and somewhat cutthroat. And the nepotism can't really be argued. Pretty much everything he did was to, like, lavish things upon his children. But he he wasn't like this super bad guy that a lot of the accounts of the time painted him out to be. Rodrigo was born in 1431. He was made a cardinal cardinal by his uncle Alphonse when Alphonse was Pope Calixtus. Uh, and he was elected pope in 1492, taking on the name Alexander VI. As a cardinal, 
before being elected Pope, he had a long-term extramarital affair, not really extramarital for him because he wasn't married, but for her, with Vanozza dei Catani. And with her, he had four children, Giovanni, Cesare, Lucrezia, and Joffrey, or Geo, or however, mm-hmm. whatever you know version you want to use it as. He also had uh, children by other women, including one uh, later in during his uh, papacy with his mistress, Julia Farnese, who I'll mention more later. Rodrigo was a skilled politician and diplomat. Uh, he was widely criticized during his reign for overspending, uh, and he was accused of simony for the sale of church offices. And of course, nepotism. He very clearly... Uh, placed Cesare and Giovanni in positions of power um, because they were his children, not necessarily because they earned it. So he appointed his son Giovanni as the captain general of the papal army, which is uh, also an Italian word that I am just so bad at pronouncing. Gonfalonier. Gonfalonier. And so Giovanni was his, or Juan, was his foremost military representative, and Cesare, he... uh, established as a cardinal uh, at the age of 17. And, of course, he used their marriages and uh, a number of marriages of Lucrezia to build alliances with powerful families. Rodrigo studied law at the University of Bologna, where he graduated not just as a, as a doctor of law, but uh, as one of his teachers uh, referred to him, the most eminent and judici- judicious jurisprudent. His uncle... Uh, moved him up from Cardinal Deacon up to uh, an actual cardinal, uh, Cardinal Bishop of Albano. And uh, Rodrigo continued to serve in the Roman Curia under five popes. Calixtus III, Pius II, Paul II, Sixtus IV, which is a weird name to say, and Innocent VIII. (laughs) And through that, he gained a lot of political power, a lot of knowledge, experience, and also a lot of wealth. Um, Rodrigo was considered a handsome and very cheerful uh, looking man. Uh, he was a smooth talker and very good with words. And uh, it is said that beautiful women were attracted to him and excited by him in quite a remarkable way, more strongly than how an iron is drawn to magnet, uh, hmm. to quote Gaspare de Verona. He also had an appreciation of the arts and sciences. And so his papacy and his, his leadership was also, also saw a big patronage of the arts. During the 15th century, there was a change in the constitution of the College of Cardinals, uh, especially under Sixtus IV and Innocent VIII. Uh, There were 27 living cardinals in the closing months of the reign of Innocent VIII, and 10 of them were cardinal nephews, which is a term which means it's a cardinal who is elevated by, you know, a relative. Um, eight were crown nominees, four were Roman nobles, and one other had been given the cardinalate in recompense for his family service to the Holy See, and only four were actually career churchmen. Hmm. Like, four had only gone through the priesthood and, like, worked their way up. Uh, so on the death of Pope Innocent VIII in July 1492, three likely candidates for the papacy were the 61-year-old Rodrigo Borgia, seen as an independent candidate. Uh, it's a very political position. Uh, Ascanio Sforza, who uh, is, was of the, the very like prominent Sforza family uh, from Milan, uh, so a lot of like Italian power there, and Giuliano della Rovere, who was a pro-French candidate. Um, and there are rumors among uh, of all three candidates of like paying out huge amounts of bribes, 
and uh, you know trying to jockey for position to get get support. Uh, and it said that Borgia actually bribed Ascanio Sforza to throw his support behind Rodrigo Borgia. Uh, so that, in addition to you know political sorts of dealings before, made an enemy out of Della Rovere, which we will see come up later as well. Uh, Borgia was elected pope in August 1492 and assumed the name Alexander VI. Uh, apparently because he wanted to avoid confusion about the status of Pope Alexander V, who was elected by the Council of Pisa, Pisa during the, uh, the Great Schism, um, mm-hmm. which is a whole other thing to talk about, but a little rabbit hole to run down. Alexander V was elected as a as a like an outside candidate for everyone to be like no let's just choose him and ignore both the Avignon and Rome popes and then that'll fix the schism but it didn't the beginning of his rule he adhered strictly to administration of justice and orderly government however uh he quickly began giving his relatives and his uh um, positions of power like Cesare uh was made archbishop of Valencia and Giovanni uh, inherited the Spanish Dukedom of Gandia, so he became Duke of Gandia, as well as, um, you know, put in charge of the papal armies. Rodrigo also looked to uh, carve out fiefdoms for his children from among the papal states and other Italian states uh, in the north and center of Italy, which put him at odds with pretty much everyone in Italy. <laughs> Not a great decision, but he had the power behind him. His papacy was was kind of marked by a lot of wars of conquest and uh, various, uh, you know, um, conflicts with either France or Italian kingdoms, depending on who was, you know, trying to do what at the time. Those alliances shifted a lot. So he, they got into a big, in, uh, big conflict with Charles VIII of France, uh, who was allied with Ludovico Sforza, those being... Uh, not the people who uh, had supported Borgia's claim to the papacy. There was a lot of a lot of tension there. With the death of Ferdinand II, uh, Charles VIII of France advanced formal claims on the Kingdom of Naples, uh, and Alexander authorized him to pass through Rome, ostensibly on a crusade to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, when the French invasion actually became clear, the Pope became alarmed, recognized Alfonso II as King of Naples, and concluded an alliance with him in exchange for various fiefs for his sons. And so uh, the papal armies and the Neapolitan army uh, moved on the French army. Uh, it eventually led to France claiming control over uh, Naples. Uh, but not too long after that, uh, the French had to retreat. Also during this time, the Borgias were often accused of things like poisoning, judicial murder, extortion, whatever, uh, to fund their schemes and the defense of the Papal States. But um, there is not a lot of historical like documentation to, to show that to be true. That's just accusations and things like that. Uh, Alexander VI came into conflict with a guy named Girolamo Savonarola, who you might have heard of. Savonarola was an iconoclast and a very strict sort of fundamentalist in Florence. Uh, He kind of took over after the Medici. He accused the Pope of all manner of, you know, heresy and adultery and all of these things, which some of which were probably true um, and essentially called for him to be removed. But the Pope didn't really take that too seriously. And, uh, 
responded saying, basically, if you come to Rome uh, by yourself without armed guard, like an honest religious person, uh, then we can we can talk this out. Uh, and if you don't do that, then we'll just have to come and get you. But uh, it was all just a bunch of bunch of words. And eventually the Florentines got tired of of Savonarola and uh, kind of overthrew him, sentenced him to death. In 1500, uh, they had the Jubilee, which is a special year of remission of sins and universal pardon. And and so uh, Alexander ushered in that the the custom of having a holy door open in the year of Jubilee. Uh, so he had this like ornate marble door crafted in St. Peter's Basilica, and on Christmas Eve 1499, uh, opened it. So this is the portico. It, it's like a, a formalized rite that represents someone like passing through and essentially like being able to uh, receive forgiveness and that that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it remained open for a full year, and that has continued to be the tradition in St. Peter's, but that started with Alexander VI. Hmm. There was also the issue of slavery. So, like, during this time, uh, you know, the New World was discovered, and there was an attitude, at least among the Spanish Catholics, that uh, the savages needed to be converted. And usually that meant uh, at the point of a sword. There have been a number of popes, even during that time, who uh, clearly condemned the practice of slavery, which was interesting to me. I'd never really thought about it, but I, I just kind of assumed that most Europeans at the time would just kind of turn a blind eye or be like, yeah, it's fine, you know? But um, a number of popes, like, clearly and and without without hesitation condemned slavery. Uh, Alexander VI was not necessarily one of them. However, he never gave his approval either. Mm-hmm. Again, he was a very politically savvy person. And given that he, you know, his family came from Spain and... He wanted to kind of, like, stay on the good side of the Spanish monarchy. He probably just kind of skirted the issue. Uh, and then during the last years of his his papacy, leading into 1501, 1502, 1503, there was a plot to uh, kind of overthrow him and his son Cesare by some of Cesare's condottieri, who were kind of like military leaders. Uh, as well as some other uh, like families that had been removed from positions of power. But those, those plots also were kind of snuffed out, uh, particularly uh, because of the sort of savvy of Cesare. He, he, he kind of moved through the chess match of, of these plots and these leaders who were going to kind of rebel he managed to essentially get them all captured and then had them strangled while they were prisoners. So that kind of put an end to anybody's thoughts of kind of going against the Borgia at that time. Cesare was preparing for another expedition in August 1503, and after he and his father dined with the Cardinal Adriano Castellesi, they were taken ill with fever. Cesare recovered, although he was uh, he kind of suffered from some disfiguration of his face and skin after that. Rodrigo Alexander VI did not, and uh, he died at the age of 72 on August 12, 1503. And the accounts of those who were with him say that he died a truly repentant and pious man, uh, that his final confessions were very moving and very honest, and he received all of the sacraments before he died. So, uh, And even a couple of the popes who followed him 
referred to him as one of the greatest popes since St. Peter. So, you know, not everyone hated him. And there were a number of good things that he did. Like I said, he, he was known for his patronage of the arts. He hired Raphael, Michelangelo, Pinturicchio. From what I'm understanding, he was kind of the beginning of sort of the artification of the Vatican. You know, he created the apostol or the, the like uh, the suite of rooms in the apostolic palace known as the Borgia apartments. Um, he also encouraged the development of education. In 1495, he issued a papal bill founding King's College in Aberdeen, hmm. and as well as the University of Valencia. So, you know, he was he was an important guy. He was an important guy. Yeah. Um, so that's that's Rodrigo. That's Alexander the Sixth. Um, like I mentioned, he had four children with Vanozza de Cantani, but he also had a number of children with other other mistresses, uh, including, like I said, Giulia Farnese, who was kind of prominent in his court at the Vatican, as well as another, another number of other women married to, you know, um, famous men. I'm going to go a little bit more quickly through his children. So uh, Juan Borgia, or Giovanni Borgia, he was the second Duke of Gandia. And uh, he was the brother of Cesare, Joffrey, and Lucrezia. It is believed he was the eldest of Alexander's children by Vanozza de Catani, but that's disputed. There are a number of papal bulls issued after his... He was murdered in, in 1497. There are a number of papal bulls issued after that that made it unclear whether, whether he was born in 1474 or 1476. If he was born in 1474, then he was the oldest. If he was born in 1476, that would make Cesare the oldest. Curious, I'm not sure why that is, but... Giovanni married uh, Maria Enriquez de Luna, and he was made the second Duke of Gandia and Grand Constable of Naples at that time, as well as the, like I said, Gonfalonier of the Church, Captain General of the Catholic Church. Juan had three children, Juan de Borja y Enriquez, and Francisca de Jesus Borgia. Juan de Borgia Enriquez, also known as Juan Borgia, uh, was the father of St. Francis Borgia. So the Borgias also have a saint in their family. Uh, he was murdered on the night of June 14th, 1497, in the ghetto of Rome. So he and Cesare and Lucrezia and Geoffrey and uh, a number of other people, uh, like Geoffrey's wife, Sancha of Aragon, Finosa's husband, Carlo Canale, they were all in attendance at this party. And the next morning, his horse came back without its rider, and one of its stirrups was cut. He was reported missing, and a search party found his body in the Tiber with his throat slit, and about nine stab wounds in his torso. Alexander launched an investigation into it, but uh, ended it abruptly a week later. There's rumor that it might have been the Orsini family, but it was, it's also thought that it might have been his younger brother, Joffrey, or it might have been Cesare. Or, in other, like, other, like, popular culture renditions, it might have been Lucrezia. So, we don't know who killed him. Hmm. And there are some, like, speculation as to a bunch of different people. His body was recovered with 30 golden ducats untouched. Uh, so it clearly wasn't a, like, mugging. Yeah, and that's... Like all there is about his death, um, it could have been could have been a number of things. Uh, it's mostly believed to have been probably caused by the fact that he and Cesare were both having affairs with Joffrey's wife, Sancha, 
the, 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 I think, primary belief is that it had something to do with tension caused by that. So I'll go to, I'll go to Joffre uh, next, also known as Joffredo or Joffre. Uh, he was the youngest son of Pope Alexander and Venanza de Catani, and he was married to Sancha of Aragon, daughter of Alfonso II of Naples. Joffrey was 12 and Sancha was 16 when they were married, and it was a, obviously a political marriage. And so that helped um, get Naples to get the support of, of the papacy. But that, as I talked about, that quickly changed as Ch- King Charles VIII of France invaded and uh, Naples just kept changing hands back and forth from like Spain to France, Spain to France, and didn't really leave a lot for uh, the House of Naples to really um, be able to leverage that relationship. During this time, they lived mostly in Rome and Sancha reputedly had affairs with both of her husband's brothers, among others. Among others. And then later in life, um, Louis XII of France attempted to con- conquer Naples. Joffrey sided with the French, but then he was captured and he joined the Spanish, which caused a revolt among the people that he was leading. And so it just did not work out for him. He did not have a great, great life, at least at the beginning. And he kind of lived out his days as not being terribly consequential. So Cesare Borgia might have been the oldest, might have been the second son. Again, we don't know. Um, we're pretty sure he was born in 17... 17- or 1475, so depending on when Juan was born. His fight for power was a major inspiration for The Prince by Machiavelli. Like I said before, he was originally a cardinal. Um, Rodrigo had the attitude that he would have one son in armor and one son in the cloth. So that's why Juan was made a a military leader and Cesare was made a a clerical... Clerical. (laughs) (laughs) Clergy leader. However, Juan's murder... And again, it's, you know, it it is thought that it might have been Cesare who killed him for this reason. After Juan's murder, Cesare was allowed to uh, resign his cardinalate, which he was the first person in history to do that. And he did so in order to pursue a military career. The same day that he resigned it, Louis XII of France named him Duke of Valentinois, and he became a condottiero which is, um, again, a military leader, but kind of like for hire. And he continued the kind of wars of conquest for the Papal States. Um, he went and smashed the, the Sforza family in Forlì, as well as a number of other Italian states, brought them under the, the Papal rule, and even conquered uh, the Republic of San Marino uh, before, shortly before Rodrigo died. Uh, he was a very capable general and statesman, However, Machiavelli cites his dependence on the goodwill of the papacy as his principal disadvantage. When Rodrigo died and was followed up by another pope, who, remember I mentioned that Cardinal Della Rovere was not a fan of Alexander VI, Della Rovere was elected pope after Alexander VI. Uh, he became Pope Julius II. And even though he uh, he had promised Cesare that he would continue supporting him and keep him, like, allow him to remain kind of in charge of papal armies, uh, once he was installed as pope, he said, no, actually, I'm not doing that, and uh, basically set Cesare up for failure time and time again. He continued fighting. Uh, he was captured a couple of times. Uh, he was in Naples and facing the hostility of Ferdinand II of Aragon, King Ferdinand right, of Spain. And he was betrayed while in Naples and imprisoned there. Then he was sent to Spain. And eventually he did escape and crossed a good portion of Spain. He arrived in Pamplona, 
in December 1506, and he was welcomed by King John III of Navarre, who had always been kind of like on the, on the side of the Borgia. Um, and so King John III installed him as his military commander uh, because Navarre was afraid that the Castilians, that, that Ferdinand II was going to invade soon, which he did. And so it was during that conflict that Cesare was killed. Uh, he had besieged Louis de Beaumont, who was at uh, Viana in Navarre. During that siege, an enemy party of knights fled. Uh, Cesare was upset that some people had managed to escape, and he went chasing after them, but then he ended up being on his own. The knights found him, and they killed him. And that's how he died. Cesare Borgia briefly employed Leonardo da Vinci as his military architect and engineer between 1502 and 1503. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, he was married to the sister of King John III of Navarre, and he had a daughter and also father to at least 11 illegitimate children. <laughs> and Machiavelli, like I said, spent time with Cesare Borgia as well. All right, so finally, we get to Lucretia. A lot of the contemporary stories of her were that she was, like, extremely crafty and a seductress and a poisoner and a lot of nasty stuff. Uh, modern scholarship looks at her with a more sympathetic light, basically saying she was kind of a victim of her family's schemes, given that she was married off multiple times and basically told, your job is to advance our agenda. And there's no actual record of her ever poisoning anyone. Her first marriage was to Giovanni Sforza. Again, a part of the Sforza family. She was married to him in 1493, which made her 13 years old at the time. However, pretty soon the Borgia family no longer needed the Sforza, and Giovanni Sforza was like not looked upon with favor. Alexander wanted more advantageous alliances, so it's, it's thought that he might have ordered the execution of Giovanni. However, uh, Lucrezia found out about it and told him, and he ran away. Upon running away, the Pope annulled their marriage under the spurious reason that the marriage was never consummated and was hmm. thus invalid. So yeah, they were annulled. Uh, kind of during this time, she had an affair with uh, a man named uh, Pedro Calderon, or also known as Proto. It is rumored that she got pregnant during that time. However, Pedro was murdered, as well as a maid, and their bodies were found in the Tiber in February 1498. She did, or, or not, maybe, maybe she did, someone had a child in the papal quarters during hmm. that time. It is rumored to be Lucrezia's. However, in 1501, two papal bulls were issued. One saying that it was Cesare's child from an affair before his marriage. The second, which remained secret for a while, I guess, uh, claimed that it was actually the Pope's child. So, who knows? Hmm. Her second marriage was to Alfonso de Aragon, um, after being annulled from the marriage to uh, uh, Giovanni Sforza. Uh, that marriage was also a short one. They were married in 1498. However, he was murdered in 1500 <laughs> after mm. returning to Rome. Um, and it's widely rumored that Cesare was responsible for Alfonso's death, as he had recently allied himself against uh, Naples, and her uh, you know, husband was in that uh, family. Uh, they had a child, Rodrigo of Aragon, who was born in 1499 and died in 1512. Her third marriage... With the one that lasted was to Alphonse d'Este with the Duke of Ferrara. After the death of her second husband, she was married to him in 1502. She had eight children during this marriage and uh, was considered a respectable and accomplished Renaissance duchess. So after Rodrigo died and the Borgia family kind of fell from grace, she maintained her status by going to Ferrara and just kind of living her life there. However, neither partner was faithful, but apparently if they're both okay with that, then that's okay, I guess. 
Uh, she had a number of affairs, and so did her husband. But she did live until uh, 1519, and she is married with her husband and children. Hmm. Okay, those are the Borgia. There were rumors that, like, Cesare and Lucrezia were in an incestuous relationship. There were even rumors that maybe, uh, you know, Rodrigo and Lucrezia had something. There's no documentation to actually support that. Mm. Oh, it may well just be accusations of, you know, people p- trying to impugn a political rival. Yeah. Who knows? This is all very Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dur- like, his his reign had a lot of, like, intrigue and things like that. Whether they were true or just people trying to, you know, stir up trouble. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's hard to know. Yeah. But, like, you know, the, the deaths of her husbands and, and the way that... Uh, Lucrezia became a, a rather skilled court figure and, and politician. Uh, she could talk her way through anything. She was also very beautiful, by all accounts. And so she had a charm that could easily sway people to her side. And so the enemies of the Borgia latched onto that as they would and you know would accuse her of things. There we go. All right, you ready for a quiz? Yes, I am ready. Okay, so these are all like related to the Borgia in some way. They're, 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 they're varied. Here we go. Question one. I doubt you have watched my first game of Jeopardy more than the time that it was on and when you watched it in person. But my first daily double is the question that I ask you now. In 1494, the Treaty of Torcedias was agreed upon by these two countries. The treaty was based upon the papal bull Intercetera from the previous year, which helped guide the two countries on how to split the new world between them. Hmm. I remember you answering the question, or the Mm -hmm. clue. If only I remembered what you said. I'm going to say France and Spain. Oh, it is Spain and Portugal. Oh, of course. Okay. Yes, which I totally guessed. Because I was like, well, Torcidias sounds Spanish. Does it sound like it's closer to France or closer to Portugal? It's like, that doesn't sound anything like Catalan or anything like that. So I'm going to yeah. say Portugal. Because nice. I had no idea yeah. what it was. Mm-hmm. But it's the treaty that Spain and Portugal signed when they agreed this much of the New World is belongs to Spain and this much of it belongs to Portugal. Mm-hmm. All right. So there we go. And it's all been fine since. <laughs> all right. Question two. The Showtime series, The Borgias, had to make certain decisions regarding the versions or interpretations of history that it portrayed. One excellent decision, however, was to cast this actor as Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI. Who knows if the role left a scar, or if he was chosen because he had previously played a role as someone with an unhealthy attraction to underage women. Oh, goodness. I don't think I know it. Um, and there was a clue in there, but I don't, I don't know the, like, I think I understand the clue, but I don't know the answer to, to that either. You know, I yeah. think if I, if I'm reading the clue, right, I feel like I've heard this, but I can't, I can't get to an actor's name. I'm just going to say Ray Fiennes. I don't Ooh. think, yeah. Not not a bad guess. It's Jeremy Irons. Oh, yes! Ah! Uh. Yes, because he played Scar. Yeah. That's why I leaned on Scar. Also, he yeah. played Humbert Humbert in the 1997 Lolita. Oh, okay. I'm trying to even remember what Jeremy Irons looks like. I think. 
That's his voice that's really like... Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, yep. That was a really good series. If I don't know if like how you'd access it now. I don't know if it's on Netflix or whatever, but the mm. Borgias was... It was entertaining. It was very good. Yeah. Okay, question three. All right, I'm struggling here. Oh, man, Gotta I get might, one. I might have... Might have made these too too niche. Mm. Speaking of historicity decisions, the Borgias play a major role as the villains of what video games? Rodrigo and Cesare are portrayed as high-ranking Templars who were directly responsible for the murder of the protagonist's family. Bad move by them, because he goes on to become a rather accomplished killer, though he does not technically kill either of them. Huh. Alright, this doesn't feel like it's gotten less niche. Uh... I I think a clue there might be accomplished killer... There's there's some video game series that that's like assassin something, right? Um, assassins. Uh, that's probably not enough, is it? Is it enough? Uh, You're so close. <laughs> um, is Assassin's Creed is coming to mind? Is that it? Yes. Yay. Okay. All right. I was like, is that like? I, I was like not. I was confident that was a phrase I'd heard, but I'm like, am I mixing up a video game with like a movie or something? All right. No, okay. Well, I mean, they they <sighs> made a really bad movie with Michael Fassbender, and actually, Jeremy Irons was in that one too, not playing Rodrigo Borgia. Uh, that's of course what that. I was thinking of. Of course. Yes. Yes. That is a no. It was <laughs> that's really not what bad. I was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Assassin's Creed. Technically, Assassin's Creed Two. The protagonist is from Florence, and his. And he, he goes on a quest to hunt down the Borgia because they killed his family. I would say in the Assassin's Creed games, they base a lot of stuff on history, but you can't really trust the history of it. Anyway. Hey, you got 10 points. Oh, you have 20 points because you guessed Lucretia. So it's like, whatever. Oh, yeah, okay. right. Question four. Lucrezia had a reputation as a poisoner and was rumored to wear a hollow ring in which she would keep said poison. Now, this stretch may be inconceivable, but what fictional poison might she have kept there if she were going up against a Sicilian when death is on the line? Uh, Iocane powder. Yeah, so I was like, I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about the Princess Bride before. Yeah. <laughs> but if we hadn't, oh, this would not work. Um, I'm not sure I have the entire script memorized word for word but no i i I had that one called Um, you have enough of it yeah (laughs) yeah cool all right nice 30 points and question five though niccolo machiavelli drew some inspiration from cesare borgia when writing the prince it was addressed as a letter to lorenzo the magnificent for five points each where did lorenzo rule and what family was he from Oh, no. Um, I'm assuming somewhere in Italy, but that it was, it would have been like a, like a small, like a, it would have been like a state or something within Italy, right? Like mm-hmm. my, my. Yeah, it, Italy Ital- was not really yeah, like a place. Yeah, Italy isn't functioning as a country for, until later. Um, my Italian history is not great. I don't think I know a family. I'll guess Florence, and I'll, uh, I'm not going to attempt to come up with a family. Yeah. You sure you don't want to guess it? Yeah. Okay, because Florence is correct. Oh, no way. Okay. Um, uh, so if it's Florence, who do you think it would be? Um, 
I'm like second guessing myself now. Medici is coming to mind, but I don't, I don't know. All right. I'll just stay with Medici. Well, it's a good thing you did because that's correct. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. First- if it's, if it's a family from, if it's like a, a famous, like political royal family from Florence, it is the Medici. All right. Um, yeah. Lorenzo was the father, I think, of Catherine de Medici of France. You know, she went, became queen of France. Yeah. Lorenzo the Magnificent. All right. Should have trusted oh, myself on that one. Yeah, there you go. Glad I said a guess out loud. Um, yeah. Better to guess something than nothing, right? Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, so it was like written to to Lorenzo the Magnificent. And uh, yeah, if you've never read The Prince, it's not. interesting. Okay. It's interesting. It can essentially be boiled down to the ends justify the means. But I don't necessarily like that take on it because I think there's a bit more subtlety to it. Essentially, it's like saying, if you're going to rule, you're allowed to do bad things for the sake of either maintaining power or the overall good of the nation or whatever. Anyway, you're at 40 points. Yay! All 40 right. points. And the I final... covered okay there. The, the final is historical events, books, and movies, all with the same name. All right, I'm kind of right, riding the struggle bus on this quiz, so I'm gonna I'm gonna save myself five points in case I miss this one. I'll wager thirty five. Okay, okay. As a you know a member of the Tom Wolfe Literary Society or whatever you are, <laughs> I, think you, I think you might get this one. Okay, all right, we'll see. Uh, so Alexander the Sixth and Girolamo Savonarola traded public insults and accusations of heresy, etc. Savonarola is perhaps best known for what Shrove Tuesday 1497 event in which the people of Florence were made to burn books, works of arts, cosmetics, and other paraphernalia deemed unfit or tempting. It is also the title of a 1987 Tom Wolfe novel and a 1990 flop starring Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith, and Morgan Freeman. All right, I, I know the answer, but my my like honorable mention essay was about the other, like Thomas Wolfe. Oh, oh, right, yeah. right, right. Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry, not sorry. Tom Never Wolf, mind. Um, but I believe you're speaking about Bonfire of the Vanities. I am speaking about Bonfire of the Vanities. Yay! That is correct. Yay! Seventy-five points. I did it. Congratulations! Whew. Yeah, th- those first couple. Of yeah, I'd be sweating on those. <laughs> All right. That was thrilling. I, I, I thought that was thrilling. I hope our listeners thought that was thrilling. <laughs> I'm sure they did. I hope that they knew Spain and Portugal and uh, Jeremy Irons, too. Well, yeah, I hope they've watched my first episode enough to have it memorized. <laughs> if they're real fans. That's that's, uh, that's just, the way to do kidding. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. Don't, yeah. don't do that. Don't do that because I embarrassed myself before the first commercial break. <laughs> Anyway. I don't remember that. Anyway, thanks, <laughs> listeners, for spending your time with us. And thank you, Kyle, for potting with me. Of course. Uh, listeners, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it would help us out if you would leave us a review and a rating. If you're interested in checking out our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash potentpotables. Um, and regardless, you can tell your friends about our podcast. Um, always looking to uh, connect with more Jeopardy fans. That is right. Uh, you can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. So we will be back next week with another week of brand spanking new Jeopardy episodes. And until then, 
May your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.